The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look Podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. Well, this has been a big week for the Supreme Court and its newest justice, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Here to talk about it is The Washington Post Supreme Court correspondent, Robert Barnes. Bob, welcome back to First Look. Nice to see you, Jonathan. You too. So the new term began on Monday. And on Tuesday, the justices heard oral arguments in a voting rights case out of Alabama that will have major implications for the Voting Rights Act of 1965. What exactly is this case about? Well, this is about Alabama's congressional uh, districts. And as you know, all states have to redraw them uh, after the census. Alabama has a voting population uh, of about 27% African-American. But when it redrew its maps, only one of its seven districts were drawn so that a candidate of color would likely emerge. That's the way it's been for decades now in Alabama. Uh, And that was challenged by a group that said there should be at least two such districts. Uh, A lower court agreed with them unanimously, involving two judges uh, uh, appointed by Donald Trump. Uh, And now the Supreme Court is taking up the case to look at when states have to uh, make room for minority, so-called majority-minority districts. Right. This is a case that revolves around race. And I'm wondering, Bob, what impact will Justice Jackson's disquisition on the race-conscious drafting of the 14th Amendment, which is really an originalist argument, what will that have on the ultimate decision, do you think? Hard to know. The conservatives on the court have not been uh, very uh, friendly to the Voting Rights Act, as Justice Kagan brought out uh, during oral arguments. But uh, it was interesting to me, the three liberal justices really sort of worked as a team to try to defend the Voting Rights Act against what Justice Kagan had said said had been conservative attacks. Uh, Justice Jackson, as you mentioned, brought up this idea that Uh, perhaps the Constitution really isn't colorblind, that the 14th Amendment and and federal law, such as the Voting Rights Act, were uh, there to protect minorities. And so race is a part of this, and it shouldn't be uh, completely excluded from these kinds of decisions. Uh, You totally took the next question I was going to ask you, which was about the three liberal justices uh, and their reasoning in this case. Let's talk about another case that's going to be coming up on the Supreme Court docket, and that involves affirmative action, one centered on Harvard, the other centered on on the University of North Carolina. What are the arguments in each? Yeah, are you sensing that race is going to be a big part of the Supreme Court term this year? Uh, (laughs) Because it is. Um, And this is Once again, uh, the court considering whether or not universities can use race as one factor 
in deciding uh, their student bodies and who they should admit. There's a challenge to Harvard's practices. There's a challenge to the practices at the University of North Carolina, so a private school and a public school. Uh, the court for decades now has said that yes, race can be used as a factor, not quotas or seats can't be held in a class for a specific race, but that race can be part of the calculation. But this is a new court, uh, a more conservative court. And so once again, uh, the issue is here. I think that it looks uh, probably worse for those who favor uh, the use of race in college admissions than it did before because the court is more conservative and the justices who have upheld this in the past largely are gone. Yeah, the court is more conservative. It's this, there's a 6-3 conservative majority uh, on the Supreme Court now. Another case, Bob, um, that the Supreme Court's going to hear weighs the role of the, um, that state legislatures can play in federal elections. What might the impact be on future elections? Well, the Constitution says that state legislatures are in charge of administering basically federal elections unless Congress steps in and, and makes its own choices. And so the question is, when the Constitution says state legislature, does it mean only the legislature or is it talking more broadly about the states? And the question here is whether state courts have a role in this. Um, state courts have played a big role in deciding when election practices violate the state constitutions. And so we have seen, uh, we've seen redistricting plans struck down in some states where they were done by Republicans, uh, North Carolina, for instance, and Pennsylvania, and by Democrats, New York and Maryland, for instance. And so this is about whether those state courts will have a role in that. It, they always have. And so it would be a huge change in the way federal elections are administered if the Supreme Court says, no, whatever the legislature says, whatever rules it sets, that's it, and it's not reviewable. Bob, let's uh, switch gears and talk about Donald Trump and those uh, purloined uh, documents <laughs> that the, the government took from Mar-a-Lago. Uh, Donald Trump has asked the Supreme Court to intervene in that classified documents case. What's he asking the high, high court to do? Well, it's uh, really a pretty limited question that he has presented to the court. There are two parts of an order that came down, one about a special master being able to look at these documents and decide, you know, are they really classified or some of them personal records that are his? So that's one thing. The, the appeals court also said that the Department of Justice can continue a criminal investigation and use the documents that were seized. Uh, Trump is not contesting whether or not the Justice Department uh, investigation can go on. He is contesting the part of the 11th uh, Circuit's order that said the special master shouldn't look at these documents and, and do his own review. And it's a very technical question about whether the appeals court acted too quickly. And so, even if uh, former president prevails at the Supreme Court on this, the legal experts I've talked to said that it's not going to be a, a huge win or it won't really uh, affect the investigation very mm. much. 
Bob, there's a story on the front page of the of the New York Times today, and I'm wondering if um, you have um, the same reporting. Um, it says the Justice Department is said to believe Trump has more documents, meaning more documents um, that he was supposed to turn over after a couple of subpoenas and then that search, and still hasn't turned them over. Will will a story like a story like that have any imp- impact or play any role into either the 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 case as it's you know with Judge Judge Cannon is her name or with this um, this uh, a question from Donald Trump to the Supreme Court asking them to intervene? Right. I don't think it would have anything to do with what the Supreme Court is looking at right now, uh, because as I said, it's a pretty technical question about the special master uh, that the Florida judge appointed. Um, But certainly it could have some effect on uh, that those proceedings in Florida, which are ongoing and, you know, are sort of just getting started in a way. Now, uh, the Justice Department has asked the 11th Circuit to sort of expedite its consideration of what the Florida judge has done. And so, you know, this investigation, these documents, uh, all of this reporting is sort of going on in separate tracks. Uh, but I don't think that would affect what's currently at the Supreme Court. And in the little time that we have left, Bob, I still, in this whole, uh, the story of Mar-a-Lago, the classified documents, Trump taking them from the White House, they're actually U.S. government property. Um, Shouldn't we keep that as sort of the North Star here, that these are documents that don't belong to the former president? They They are documents that belong to the United States government? Yes, but I do think that part of this suit is about, are they really documents that I mean, they, yes, they belong to the government, but are there personal things in there? There have been some reports that said some things were sort of inadvertently seized, and that's what happens when the FBI goes in and does one of these searches. You know, they sometimes gather up more than they should. And But the Justice Department says they've already had someone go through and look at that. I mean, you know, the... As you know, the former president is pretty litigious. He likes to file uh, lawsuits. Uh, Sometimes they're successful. A lot of times they're not. Um, But, you know, it's all part of the sort of boil uh, about uh, this and the former president. And what he says is, you know, sort of unfair treatment by the current administration. It's a little hard to separate the politics from the legal issues sometimes. You know what? That is truth, Bob. <laughs> Bob Barnes, Supreme Court correspondent for The Washington Post. Thank you for coming back to First Look. Have a great weekend. My pleasure. Thank you. We're going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of The Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post columnists Eugene Robinson and George Will. Gene and George, welcome back to First Look. Glad to be with you. Good to be here, Jonathan. All right, so I was going to start with Supreme Court, but let's. I, I want to start with the the brand new jobs numbers and unemployment numbers, just to get a quick take on, on what it might mean uh, for the administration for the, for the midterms. Two hundred sixty three thousand jobs created in September. Unemployment rate fell 
to 3.5%. George, what do you make of this? Uh, we're in a very peculiar economy in which we are by standard definition in or close to a recession, yet unemployment is very low. Whether or not we're heading for something like stagflation, I don't know, but I, I don't think this is going to affect the midterms because the American people don't take their sense of economic well-being from Bureau of Labor Department statistics <laughs> from a stroll down the down the aisle of a grocery store or a pause at the gas tank where they have the interesting experience of a hundred dollar fill up. Uh, so I, politically, I think it's it's negligible. Gene. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I would agree with George. I don't think people, you know, are are like us and eagerly awaiting the numbers and to see what the number is. And you know, uh, stock market traders are. I think the markets are are a bit down now, but uh, I don't think that's the way people mm -hmm. are uh, experienced you know, the economy uh, and make their decision on on who they're going to vote for in the midterm. Um, all right, let's talk about the Supreme Court. Um, Gene, how conservative is this court and, and how will that inform its eventual rulings on cases like voting rights and affirmative action? Because as Bob said in the last, um, in the last segment, mm -hmm. race is a huge part of this, of this, uh, court's docket. Yeah, I think, and this court is very, very, very conservative, <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, one of the... Uh, one of the big skeptics uh, about affirmative action is uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, who, who, who is what passes for a moderate or swing vote on this court. Um, not that that even makes a difference anymore, since uh, even without him, there's a, a five-judge, very conservative uh, majority. So uh, I, um, I, I am. I look ahead in in sorrow um, uh, and some anger at what I think is likely to happen in this term uh, on those cases involving voting rights. I think we will. Uh, we may well see what is left of this landmark uh, legislation that made such a huge difference in the lives of uh, well of me <laughs> and of of, uh, and of my family. Uh, mm -hmm. In South Carolina, I think we'll see the most of the rest of this act, um, you know, go the way of the of the dinosaurs. I mean, it'll be invalidated, and I think we'll see um, what's left of affirmative action. I think um, under serious attack, I don't know if a shred of it will be saved. Mm -hmm. Let's, uh, George. Let's keep talking about the Voting Rights Act because, and the and the the Alabama case. Because liberals usually don't like the originalist argument used by conservatives in court cases, but Justice Jackson used it to great effect in the Alabama case, I, th I thought. I'm, I'm dying to know what you think. Well, I think she's resting an awful lot on a thin reed, which is the existence of the Freedmen's Bureau Act in the 1860s, that because legislation was passed at that time, contemporaneous with the with the enactment of the 14th Amendment. Therefore, race-conscious policies are generally acceptable. I don't think that's, the, that's too much weight to put on the Freedmen's Act. And I think if people really want to get into the weeds about the 14th Amendment, they should read a book by Randy Barnett and a co-author published by Harvard last year, just really 
comprehensive history of that. But it is fanciful to think that we are ever going to get an end to arguments and litigation about race-conscious policies. Uh, it, it just goes so much against, some of us believe, uh, the American creed that we're going to litigate and fight over this. Now, w with regard to the case of affirmative action in higher education admissions, hysteria being the, de the default position of Americans this time, next June, when the court rules on this, there will be hysteria obscuring the following. I, I don't know if Gene agrees with this or not. No matter what the court says, it won't make a particle of difference. It's one particular to uh, the way universities behave. Uh, that is, the one exception is this. If they strike down, they say you cannot have racial considerations and admissions, this will accelerate the already galloping trend in academia to do away with SATs and, and general uh, uh, standardized tests, period, because they will do that. And then they'll say, well, we're not, we're gauging each admission on a holistic, that's the magic word, a holistic evaluation. And, and therefore, what the court says will simply not matter. Universities Gene, are going to do The floor is yours. <laughs> oh, sorry, George, were you still, I'm sorry. Oh, no, fine. I want to hear from Gene. Okay. <laughs> sorry about that, George. Oh, well, I, I do think what the court says will matter. Um, and I, I think it, uh, I think it will make a difference um, uh, to uh, African American students um, or would be students across the country. That said, uh, I do believe that uh, universities will uh, by, seek at least uh, ways around an adverse ruling to ensure uh, something that they see as a good uh, for all of their students, which is having uh, a diverse student body. Uh, and um, whether or not the court says that is uh, a, a reasonable goal for universities to have, I believe a lot of university um, uh, administrators um, uh, will continue to believe that, that is, uh, that's a good thing for all their students and they'll you know they're pretty clever people, so they they will seek ways uh, around it. Uh, but they'll be they'll be handicapped. They'll be hamstrung in a way that they're not now. Uh, all I know is uh, about that holistic approach. I am glad Carleton College used the holistic approach in the nineteen in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> when looking at me, because my SAT scores were, whoo, I hated those do or die standardized tests. Let's talk about the midterms. And we can't talk about the midterms without talking about Herschel Walker. The Daily Beast published a story quoting a woman who claims the pro-life Republican candidate for U.S. Senate from Georgia paid for her abortion in 2009. A subsequent report came out with more quotes from her including that she already has a child by Walker. Meanwhile, the candidate has denied these claims. Let's listen. It's sort of like everyone is anonymous or everyone is leaking and they want you to confess to something you have no clue about, but it just shows how desperate they are right now. They see me as a big threat and I know that and I knew it when I got into this race, but they don't realize that I think they came for the wrong one. They, they energize me. Um, 
what I mean, he's talking about um, anonymous and everyone is leaking. One of those people who's been outspoken since the, the publication of the Daily Beast story is yeah. his own son, Christian Walker. Yeah. So, um, Gene, you go first. Can Walker yeah. survive yeah. this? And what does this entire spectacle say about the Republican <laughs> Party? I want you both to answer those questions. Gene first. Well, look, um, <laughs> I think recent history shows us that uh, any politician can survive anything. So yes, it's possible that he survives this, uh, but it's certainly also true that I think it damages him, uh, if not with the hardcore um, MAGA base, uh, certainly with uh, independents, with uh, more loosely attached uh, Republicans who, um, who, who, who pay attention and who care about having uh, a reasonable, um, uh, truthful, intelligent person representing them in the United States Senate. Uh, and all those people um, logically are going to vote for Warnock as opposed to uh, as opposed to Walker. But um, I'm not ruling anything out because what it says about the Republican Party is what we've been saying um, for years now. It, it is a cult. Uh, it is a cult of personality around Donald Trump and Herschel Walker is Donald Trump's candidate and the party, uh, at least um, nominally and, in, and with dollars now, is all in on Herschel Walker. George. Well, we are technically in year 22 AD, two, 2022 AD. Actually, we're in year six politically of P-A-H-T. That is the sixth year after post-Access Hollywood tape. The Access, <laughs> Access Hollywood tape came out on election eve, and uh, to put it mildly, did not derail uh, the star of the Access tape, uh, which meant that a, a lot of people, including uh, what are called the religious right or evangelical Christians or whatever, they said we'd rather win than uh, have a, an, an exemplary role model to win with. So I, the, the question is, what difference will this make? Well, it's a tight race in Georgia, and therefore, if it has any negative effect, it's apt to have a large effect, even under the control of the, of the United States Senate. But surely the most stunning fact about this is that it will if it has a small effect, that will be all the effect it has. And that tells us much about the strange role that the religious right now plays. Very strange. Um, let's, <laughs> uh, in a little bit of time, Gene, did you want to um, add something else? No, I was just saying okay. the very strange role. It really is. I mean, these, these are, um, uh, well, I, look, that's a whole show. We can, we can do right. on the religious right. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it sure is. I remember those folks lecturing me about a whole lot of stuff that they now seem uh -huh. to ignore. But now let's talk, let's talk about um, uh, about Russia, its war on Ukraine and comments made by President Biden last night uh, in New York, where he said that, quote, Armageddon, the risk of Armageddon is the highest it's been since 62, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, I would love for both of you to talk about that. Is the president being hyperbolic? Um, is he saying the quiet part out loud? Um, is the, should we take uh, Vladimir Putin's nuclear saber rattling seriously, George? I think the president's right. I think the president has been uh, 
a failure about most things, but he's been brilliant about the most important thing. He and Blinken have been wonderful about Ukraine. And what they're trying to do is to win delicately. Now, it's hard to do that in a war, but that's what they're trying to do without uh, pushing uh, Putin to an irrational crossing of the nuclear threshold. I believe, and I've just read Max Hastings' wonderful book, Abyss, A New History of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Having read that, I am convinced that we are today closer to the first use of nuclear weapons since Nagasaki than we were in October, 60 Octobers ago in 1962. Because Khrushchev, for all his faults, and they were legion, was not irrational. And it, it, there are sound reasons to believe or to worry that Mr. Putin is increasingly panicked, desperate, inflamed, and irrational. Wow. Gene. No, I mean, um, that, that is sobering coming from George, um, uh, whose who's, who's reading of history is uh, often distressingly uh, accurate. Um, I, 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 there's another big difference, which is that Khrushchev uh, was not isolated. He was uh, surrounded by the Soviet apparat he um uh, uh <laughs> you know and 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 so it was more of a collective sort of um uh decision making process that allowed sobriety um and uh and careful thought and within that context dissenting voices and putin is isolated um uh, apparently talking only to a few uh, you know, in decreasing number of people in his inner circle, uh, and um, uh, and may not be entirely rational. So I'm really worried. I think President Biden was just speaking truth um, that uh, we have not seen anything like this certainly since the Greek Cuban Missile Crisis, and maybe right. since Nagasaki. George, you wrote um, in a column this week that the United States needs to get more sophisticated weaponry to Ukraine immediately. What exactly do you want to see? Um, sophisticated drones, other types of weaponry? Yes, we've already seen that, that our most sophisticated artillery, uh, rockets and all the rest, with long range and extraordinary precision have made a huge difference, killing, among other things, lots of senior Russian officers because these can target command centers. Uh, next would be drones that, that make artillery all the more effective because they can, uh, the Russian artillery can fire and can be fired back at almost instantly with intelligence provided by surveillance drones. This goes to the problem of, as I, to use the phrase I used a moment ago, winning delicately. Uh, you want to win, you want to get them out, not just back if possible to the February 24th beginning of the war, but out of the portions of Ukraine that Russia had effectively occupied before that. We, and uh, uh, the difficult decision that Biden and Blinken have to make is at what point are you not delicate in the use of force? I think within the parameters of delicacy, uh, drones of this sort are permissible. Gene, what do you make of that? Should the United States, do, do you agree with George? Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I agree, and I certainly agree with this construction about winning delicately. I think um, the uh, the red line that, that 
uh, Biden and Blinken have drawn is, uh, and Lloyd Austin, by the way, the defense secretary, who's in general Milley, they're deeply involved in these weapons decisions. And what they don't want to do is give Ukraine weapons that can attack deep inside Russia. Um, which um, deep inside what everyone agrees and recognizes as Russian territory. Uh, and I think they'll continue to hold that line. Um, but yes, by all means, should supply the Ukrainians with weapons uh, that, that fall short of that and that allow them to do whatever they can within the, within the borders of Ukraine as it's internationally recognized, some of which Russia now occupies. Okay, we've got less than a minute left, but I can't let you go without asking just a, a yes or no yes or no answer here. Yesterday, President Biden announced um, that he was pardoning everyone who had been um, uh, convicted of federal marijuana conviction, uh, uh, federal marijuana, marijuana, I can't even talk, federal marijuana charges. <laughs> good idea, bad idea. Gene, good idea, bad idea. I think it's fine. I think the country is in the process of decriminalizing marijuana. Um, uh, this is a relatively small step. It affects a few thousand people. A simple possession on federal charges. Um, uh, I think we're heading in that direction. Gene, George? Yeah, I, I agree, particularly because, as I understand it, Mr. Biden is dealing with a small set of people who are in prison because of mere possession. Right, not possession. And that, and that matters. So the answer is yes. No, no. Gene Robinson, George Will, and George, may I say, I am totally grooving on your on on the tailing of your blazer. I'm going to have to get in touch with you to find out who needs that because <laughs> I really Jeff, do like it. Press it at Ellen 19th, Ellen 18th Street. All right. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you all for watching Fashion Talk. Gene Robinson, George Will, thank you as always. Thank you uh, both very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. <laughs> you too, Jonathan. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.